Welcome to the Gospel Journey podcast. The Gospel Journey exists to help our people get into discipling relationships that are centered on God's Word and led by His Spirit. Today we'll be talking about Ephesians 1 from Path 7. My name is Ben Robin, and I'm here with Jamie Trussell and Bryce Rader. Well, guys, the first week of the new Gospel Journey podcast is on predestination. Well, to be fair, it's not only on predestination, though that is in the text. And we just keep in mind, people have landed on different places over the years, but we'll do our best to navigate this uh, this morning and hopefully help provide some insight for your groups as you move through the text as well. Jamie, I'd just love to hear from you about the introduction to this book. Yeah, it's a pretty standard introduction for a letter of this time. Uh, a lot of things you could highlight. I guess I'd draw a, a couple, starting with how Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Uh, it's not an exclusively Christian term, uh, but in this context, it means one uh, who's sent by the king with the words of the king. Those words have the authority of the king. So Paul's introducing not only himself, but the content of the letter here in verse 1. So he is writing to them as an authoritative messenger, as someone who's seen the resurrected Christ. Uh, so after modifying himself, he modifies the audience. So we know he's writing to Christians, uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And his only modifier for them is that they're faithful, which is obviously the bullseye of the target we're striving for. Uh, now it's how success, in a sense, is determined in Christian living, is are we being faithful to what Jesus has called us to do? And then his greeting and his wish for them is grace, grace and peace. Uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing I do love about the idea of peace, uh, I think biblically considered, is it's not simply the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of wholeness. And so we're about to see, following here in verses 3 through 14, really all the way through chapter 1, that there's this idea that, that through the finished work of Christ, everything is going to be made whole again. And um, so, yeah, that's what, that's what jumps out to me in those first couple verses. That kind of helps us understand the introduction to Ephesians, verses 1 through 2. Now as we move into the next section, verses 3 through 14, I'd love to hear from you, Bryce, about that section. Yeah, 3 through 14 in the Greek is one long sentence. It's two hundred. It's 202 words. Peter T. O'Brien says it's the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I've ever found in the Greek language. It's unbelievable how Paul... Um, just continues to go on and on and on about God's sovereign grace in salvation. And, and it's broken up in, in a unique way in the past, the present, and the future. And so the first part is the past where God has chosen us. The second part is the present where we're redeemed by the Son. And the last is the future um, where we're assured by the Spirit. One of the first things I noticed when I read this the first time is in verse 3, uh, how the Father's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the first time I read that, I almost, um, it was almost like a little bit of panic. It was like, oh man, I got to figure out what these spiritual blessings are. Like I got to be able to, to point to all 10 or 12 things or whatever it is um, that are those spiritual blessings. And I think sometimes when we read, we might tend to feel that way. What's interesting is uh, the more I read it, the more clear it became to me that he defines it in the following verses, that the idea of in him is repeated, I think it's uh, 11 times or, or something like that in just these few verses. And so Paul is defining the spiritual blessings right there in the text for us. We don't have to 
uh, run somewhere else to try and understand or define what that means. He tells us. So it's the choosing of the Father. It's the predestining of the Father. It's the redemption of the Son. It's the sealing of the Spirit. All of these things are in Christ. These are these spiritual blessings in the heaven, heavenly realms. Yeah, and to stress that too, it's a, a really damning thing when people start taking the blessings of God and making them only material mm-hmm. and preaching a gospel that says if you come to Jesus, he's going to he's going to, you know, give you the best version of you or make your life as great as it could possibly be now. And it's it's we're reminded here in this uh opening of Ephesians that uh you know, the goal is certainly not the best version of me. That would be that would be horrific. I don't want to become more of me. I want to be, become more of Christ. And becoming more of Christ is only accomplished or possible by these spiritual blessings uh, being true and being approximated for us by God. And so uh, it doesn't mean that God won't bless us materially. It does mean that he does not primarily bless us materially. And that's what Paul is going to unpack here in verses through 14. And so we're, you know, just election, purification, holiness, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, knowledge of the mystery of God's will, our inheritance, our hope, just hearing the gospel, being sealed in the spirit. All of these things are are indispensable spiritual blessings that's true for every Christian. Uh, the, the danger would be to, because these aren't as tangible to taste, touch, see, and feel, it's just easier to go to material things. Uh, the problem is those material things aren't primary. Yeah, I think the other repeated phrase that I see a lot, at least three times in the verses we're talking about, uh, is this idea of to the praise of His glory or to the praise of His glorious grace, uh, that His being the Father there, um, that it, it seems like, maybe if I could paraphrase, our salvation, brothers, is not ultimately about us. Mm-hmm. It's about God. Absolutely. That we are saved, that God might get glory, seems to be one of the, one of the main thrusts of what Paul is saying here. I agree with that, and I think that we don't just see this right here, but we see this from Genesis to Revelation, that all throughout God's Word you see for His namesake or or for His glory or, or to make His name great. And I think that is... Um, it, it, it's a beautiful truth to understand um, because it takes our eyes off of ourselves and on to the Lord because it's for His glory. I would affirm that. I would temper it slightly by just saying uh, I don't want people to hear that and misconstrue it to think that somehow we're unimportant to God or not valuable to God because that's certainly not true um, we're just not the cent- we, we would like to be the center of God's universe uh, it's the reality that God's the center of his universe and that's the best possible thing for us for God to be the center of his universe yeah absolutely alright so in verse 4 we start with God predestining us before the foundation of the world. I know that's a, um, that, that's a tricky subject that, that many people um, fumble over, and there's been um, great debate um, for centuries talking about this. Ben, when it talks about how He chose us in Him, what does that mean? Well, I think two things that are really important for us to understand from the text itself are, are what what is the, um, the result of predestination? I think it gives us, in verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless. So the idea is that us following Christ, as Jamie was saying earlier, the whole point is that God is making us more and more like His beloved Son. That, that uh, Romans 8 says, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined 
to be conformed to the image of his son. The idea is that the Christian life is us becoming sanctified until we one day become glorified, that we might look more and more and more like Jesus. And then the other thing I think I'd point out is just in verse 5, um, in my, I'm reading ESV, uh, mine starts with, in love he predestined us. And I was just thinking about that phrase as I was thinking about this, this text for our conversation this morning. And I think it's interesting that, that some folks, it seems like, um, want to make it sound like Paul should have said, in hate he predestined us. Uh, and and that's, that's just not what he says. And so we have to, we, we're all going to have to, as Christians, have some doctrine of predestination. The word shows up six times in the New Testament. It happens to show up two times in the verses we're talking about right now. So we have to understand what is meant by it. Um, and we can talk about that here in a second, but I think the first thing we ought to know is that it's a loving thing for God to do this predestining thing. Uh, that Paul says, in love he predestined us. And so we always want to, as we're trying to understand the scriptures and trying to understand the Lord through them, we, we have to agree with what God, sa- God says about himself and about us. And I think we also have to point out that the choosing was in Christ and the adoption through Christ Jesus. Uh, I, I remember um, reading a commentary by F.F. F. Bruce and he says that we were unworthy in and of ourselves, and so the Lord chose us in Christ. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing to understand, that, that before the foundations of the world, that, that we were um, unworthy in and of ourselves, and, and the Lord chose us in Christ. And I think that shows that before the foundations of the world, that plan A was that Christ was going to go to the cross to die for us, that there was no, as people might see the fall and say there was a plan B um, because Adam sinned. No, there was always plan A, and we were chosen in Christ. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and I think it's good to be talking about these verses because people go through the gospel journey and have questions. Hopefully this podcast is a helpful tool in their navigating of questions. I think it's one of the most obvious questions from this first section. I had qualify that by two things is one is not to get bogged down here because this isn't the only spiritual blessing listed in verses three through 14. Yep. It's, it's a, you know, we should be as equally interested in what does it mean for us to be holy and blameless and redeemed and adopted? What is the mystery of God's will? And so I would caution anyone going through the gospel journey as we're discipling people to make sure we're equally concerned and interested in all the spiritual blessings in this passage now, naturally, because of what's already been mentioned, yeah, we have, we have you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of trying to figure out what does this mean. Um, and so I think it's fair to land in a couple different places. I agree with what Ben said. You need to have some working idea about what's going on here. I don't think it's good enough to just say, well, I can't understand it or I don't like it, so I'm going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't think that's the approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's fair to say that that at some level there is a corporate choosing that's happening, but if you leave it there, I don't think you go far enough because I think you can't ignore the individual aspect of God's election and choosing as well. And so we see both throughout Scripture. Uh, I don't press this as a hill to die on point, but uh, I do think Paul is saying that God in His grace has chosen or predestined a people for himself, 
And the purpose, as you've already pointed out, Ben, is that those people be holy and blameless mm-hmm. before him. And I think if we're, one, we can be comfortable and disagreeing about what maybe the nuances would be. Yep. And I love Harvest as a church because we haven't chosen this as a hill to die on. We have said we will die on the fact that uh, God is sovereign, God's powerful, and God does the work of salvation. We don't bring anything to the table. And that is, um, going back to, it is in love and it's in Christ. It's nothing because of us that leads to our adoption as sons. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's, you rightly point out, it's it's a conversation that's been going on for years, and we, we'd be foolish to think that we've solved the issue after thousands and thousands of years of Christians talking about it. Um, at the same time, I'm more interested, rather than sort of arguing the point and, and sort of dying on the hill, as you said, Jamie, I'm more interested in, in trying, like the Apostle Paul, to portray this as a loving and beautiful and amazing thing that God would see us rebel sinners as king of creation. He would look down at his servants and see them rebelling against him, and he would still, out of his great love and mercy, uh, just work to affect our salvation, something that we could never do for ourselves. And so I'm yep. much more interested in portraying this as I think what Paul says, in love he predestined us, right? And, and I think so, you're correct in that. And I think that uh, at some level that comes down to our view of humanity. Yeah, And if, if you view humanity as not really that bad, it becomes a, more of a hateful thing. Mm-hmm. But if you view humanity as actually being uh, what the Bible paints it as being, then it does become certainly a more loving act for God to initiate. The work of salvation. And I think to that point, if you understand um, who we are before the Lord, then understanding predestination will, will not cause us to, to puff up our chest mm-hmm. and say, wow, look what the Lord has done. He chose me because I was so great. No, it's the exact opposite. It leads us to great humility because we were sinful and we were actually running away from the Lord, and He had to choose us in Christ because in and of ourselves, like I said before, we were not worthy. And so it leads us to great worship, great humility, and I think it also gives us assurance because it was the Lord that chose us, and as He chooses us, we are in Him. And so again, I think it does lead us, as Kenan talked about um, a couple weeks ago, that, that it leads us to assurance and worship and also great humility. I appreciate you brothers not wanting to shrink back from what is a hard subject in, in the Scriptures and something that's definitely harder to understand than, than some other more clear things. I'd love to conclude this section on predestination with a quote from Spurgeon, which I think it just really sums up the, the sort of points we've been making here. Spurgeon once said, I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him, and I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Yeah, that's great. And I will just say that if you're still struggling with this, want to talk more about this, our pastors and elders or your gospel journey leader, whomever, keep, keep digging into this because uh, it's important and it can lead to some people struggling with some things. Yeah. And so... Uh, like you said, don't shrink back from it. There's a mystery here of human freedom, or, or I would just say human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And if our quest is to solve that, we're going to miss the mark of praising God for the work that he's done for us. I completely agree with that. I think 
the reason that Paul writes this is so for the praise of his glorious grace that we might worship the Lord um, in all his beauty. And so I think that's a great point. But Ben, to circle back around, you can comment on this. If we're becoming a gospel people, it starts with our coming to saving faith in Christ. Absolutely. And Paul's unpacking what that does for us. Yes, corporately, but 3 through 14 really helps us as believers understand individually what's been accomplished for us on our behalf by Jesus. Absolutely. Now, that doesn't mean our faith is individualistic. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so so as Paul's unpacking this, uh, I'd love to look into a few few more of these spiritual blessings, and then how does it start to shift then to us corporately becoming a gospel people? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, it's interesting how much the New Testament is replete with sort of these one another verses that uh, Jesus even says, the world's going to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And uh, Paul would say in Colossians 3 that we should put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, humility, and patience, right? These aren't um, individual characteristics or character traits. It's not saying um, that, Bryce, you really need to be a more patient person. It's saying that, Ben, bear with Bryce in patience, that they are what some have called relational graces. There's just not a way to do those things outside the context of the corporateness of our Christian life, that, that we're in Christian life, in relationship to God as a people, not as just a person. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's, it is an individual reality of salvation, of course, just like you said, Jamie, but there's also this corporate aspect of the Christian life that is just as important. Uh, you, just, you just can't fulfill the commands of the New Testament without being in the context of other Christians, right? Yeah, and I think you get the first taste of this, as Paul's talking about in verse 9 of chapter 1, that he's making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, Mm -hmm. to unite all things Mm -hmm. uh, in Christ. And so we're making a shift here towards this uh, creation of a people that are united in Jesus, and the mystery, what is that mystery that Paul's going to unpack really is the church. Mm-hmm. It's the mystery of Jesus uniting all peoples as one people, yep. which is pretty unheard of yep. during this time. And so the mystery of God's will is that Jew and Gentile will all be saved by grace through faith, and that they'll all be united in one worshiping body of God. Yeah, there are so many lines or, or barriers or boundaries in the world that divide us. And uh, ethnicity is certainly one of those things in Paul's context, with Jews and Gentiles being divided by their race. Uh, And I would say even in our context here, we're seeing in our nation a lot of strife and struggle over ethnic divides. Uh, But, Paul says, in the church, God has made one man in Christ, that where we were once divided, we are now united. That's right, and part of that unity is understanding that verses 3 through 14 are true of us, all yeah. of us, Yeah. no matter your background. No matter, That's right. That's 3 through 14, these spiritual blessings are true for all of us. And I love, um, just to push us forward a little bit, where he goes to verse 15, beginning with 4, which is a great Bible study word for, for us and for all of our uh, people going through the gospel journey. It just means it's a continued explanation of what, what just came before it. And he's saying, for this reason... 
because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Again, he's praising them for their corporate love of one another. It's not individual experience. It's not individual, you know, anything. He's saying, I am literally praising God for how you love one another, which can only be played out in a relational context. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing I would say is, and while the evangelism initiatives and, you know, church for the unchurched, and I get the heart behind all of that, because mm-hmm. we are, should be about evangelism, gospel making to the, or disciple making to the ends of the earth. Uh, we've got to be really careful not to lose the preeminence of loving the Christian. Absolutely. And sometimes we can love, we can devalue loving the Christian. And I think Paul elevates loving the Christian uh, because family loyalty is a big deal in the scriptures. Absolutely. And so, yeah, it's not it's not individualistic. It's corporate, and he's praising them for how they're playing out that corporate reality at the church in Ephesus. And I think even further on that same point, uh, as much as we celebrate and love and relish in evangelistic and discipleship uh, initiatives and just movements of people, that that people would care about sharing the gospel with people who have never heard of Christ, and that people would care about um, helping people to become mature in Christ. Those are amazing things. We never want to, in those things, um, supplant in some way or, or, or replace in some way God's design for those things, that those would take place in the context of a local church, that, that God has made Christ the head over the church, it says uh, in verse 22 near the end of the chapter, that, mm. that the church, the local church, this unity among people who are in Christ is God's mystery. It's just God's plan from, from the beginning of the ages. Uh, and so we don't want to come up with some other in our own humanly wisdom design for evangelism and discipleship outside of God's design, the local church. So as we move in to talk about the rest of the chapter here, verses 15 through 23, we're seeing this apostolic prayer that Paul is praying for the saints in Ephesus who he's writing to here. And it's pretty interesting to, to, to look at and to think about how Paul prays that we might um, work to pray like him. I mean, we have an inspired prayer here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Paul is, is praying, and so we can pray like that for each other. Absolutely. There's a book called Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. That's an unbelievable book that just kind of walks out each and every prayer um, by Paul and helps us dive deeper into those and, and understand those that, that we might um, conform our prayers after his. Ben, when it talks about um, how he's praying for them and, and that um, their, their eyes of their heart might be enlightened, um, what do you think that means? Yeah, think about the phrase, hearts don't have eyes. So something's going <laughs> yeah. on there with what Paul's unpacking it. And to to go off what Ben was was saying is that if we take the heart to be a just a this is a literary technique of saying the like the wholeness of your being mm-hmm. like the place where they may have centered your emotion and will and desire like everything we're going to define the essence of who you are by just saying this is your heart we yep. do that today even yep. he's saying that that all of who you are would be informed by the hope to which he's called us the riches that is our inheritance in the saint, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us to, who believe. And if we really grew in our understanding with that, it would revolutionize the way that we walk with Christ. Because he's not just saying, I want you to be enlightened and grow in your understanding. He's saying, I want you to grow in your understanding in these specific things. The hope to which you're called, the riches of our inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And how much of that is future? The hope to which you're called and the inheritance? 
that we will receive. I mean, yeah. certainly the work that he's doing in us is present and future, but those two are, are distinctly future. And so the, the idea here is that the more we focus our gaze on what we know God is going to do by faith, that's going to change how we live right now. Absolutely. Yeah, and it brings into view a, the biblical definition of hope. It's not, you know, I hope that Auburn wins Saturday. It, <laughs> Wishful thinking. Which, which, which may or may not happen. Right. Biblical hope is... Is it's assured. It's it is our longest desire that's going to certainly be fulfilled. That's right. And so when we read this, we're not reading about Paul saying, "Well, hope it all works out in the end." He's saying, "No, your hope, what you long for, is assured to happen. Why? Because it rests on the completed work of Christ, and that's that cannot be changed." That's right. If it were all up to me to choose and predestine and redeem and justify and sanctify myself, then I would have to have wishful thinking hope. That's right. I certainly hope this works out. But because it's that which God has worked, we can have a certain hope. And so we've seen this far, Paul's identified himself. He's identified the audience with great length here. Uh, Now let's look at what he says about Jesus. He says some things about Christ to finish the chapter here, beginning in um, verse 20. And I'll just highlight some of them and love to hear y'all's comments. But he says that that, uh, Jesus was raised from the dead. Yep. He says that he's seated at God's right hand. He says that he is uh, preeminent and supreme in authority. And he says that Christ is the head of the church. Uh, and those aren't the only things that he says, but there's some big, uh, uh, massive ideas as it centers around the person of Jesus in these last few verses of chapter 1. I think this can be a, a bit of a thorny issue as well as we think about Jesus is given authority. Uh, he says in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so we think to ourselves, and we're seeing a similar idea here, that Jesus has been raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, and given all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's above all of, all of the things that there are. Uh, and so we think about, well, wait a minute, Jesus is God, he, God has all authority. What do you mean you're given all authority? And that, that can be a little tricky for us, I think. Um, I think what Paul is getting at, I think what Jesus is getting at there is that there is this humiliation of the Son, that in his humility, he becomes like us. He becomes man. And, and he, it says, emptied himself in, in Philippians 2, right? That he has voluntarily chosen to add to his deity humanity. And so it's the human who's raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. And so it's Christ in his role as Messiah, as Christ, um, that is given all authority. Yeah, and I, I think, too, knowing that part of that authority is, is it says it's over the church. Yeah. And for local churches to always remember and acknowledge that, uh, that ultimately their church is submitted to Jesus. Um, you know, that's not... Not the pastor, that's a, that's the ultimate authority over the church. It's not the elders that are the ultimate authority over the church, though that does play out in in local bodies, certainly. But what we're trusting is that those local uh, 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 offices of the church are submitted to Christ. And this is why historically they've been called under-shepherds. That's right. They are under the great shepherd, Jesus, who is head of the church. That's right. As we wrap up today, Bryce, do you want to summarize or, or conclude for us the things that we've talked about? Yeah, absolutely. I um, I praise God for this text, Ephesians chapter 1. I think it's a text that each and every one of us can continue to, to dwell in and 
as um, Paul prays spiritual illumination, that we can ask the Lord that he open our eyes um, to, to the beautiful truths of God predestining us and, and Christ redeeming us and, and the Spirit sealing us, that, that we can continue um, to grow more and more in those truths. And with that, as Jamie talked about, in understanding those, that we can worship the Lord um, that, that has made it possible for, for us to, to be reconciled to Him and, and even go and, and proclaim Him. And so in this, um, I think this is a text that each and every one of us will, will continue to, to just learn more and more and more. And this text will continue to grow us and shape us as we become a gospel people.